On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, "They, They have no more wine. Dear woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied, My time has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim, and then he told them, Now, draw some out, take it to the master of the banquet. They did so, and the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, Everyone brings out the choice wine first, then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you've saved the best till now. This, the first of his miraculous signs, Jesus performed At Cana in Galilee, he thus revealed his glory, and his disciples put their faith in him. Amen, and you can have a seat. I heard a couple stories. Uh, One was a little little boy went to Sunday school, and they, they learned about when Jesus turned the water into wine. When he got home, his dad asked him what he learned. And he thought for a moment, he says, well, you know, if you're going to have a wedding, make sure Jesus is there. I thought that was good advice. I heard another one about uh, some medical missionary nuns, and they were driving down the road. They ran out of gas, and they didn't have a gas can, but they did have a bedpan. So they went and got some gas, and, and they started pouring the gas into the, the car, and two guys drove by, and they looked at them, and they thought, man, they got a lot more faith than I do. Heard one more. Uh, pastor was giving uh, Mrs. O'Leary some communion, a shut-in lady, and, and uh, he brought, instead of grape juice, he brought some wine. And uh, Mrs. O'Leary was a little bit upset, and the pastor said, Mrs. O'Leary, you know, even Jesus upon occasion maybe had a little spot of wine. And she said, and that's one thing I didn't like about him. <laughs> This is not a story about whether you should have wine or not have wine. It's a much deeper meeting. This is about the glory of Jesus. This is about the glory of Jesus so that we'll come to faith in Jesus Christ. That's what this story is about. Last week, I said as we move through the Gospel of John together, the glory of Jesus is being revealed. John chapter 1, verse 14, the Word became flesh, dwelt among us. We've seen His glory, glory as the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And I think John wrote this Gospel so that we today could be included in this amazing privilege. We have seen his glory, the glory of the incarnate Son of God. So our prayer today should be, God, show me your glory. Show me your glory. And when we see his glory, there are huge effects 
In fact, chapter 1, verse 16 sums them up. And from his fullness, we've all received what? Grace upon grace. Some versions say blessing upon blessing. And when God gives us eyes to really see Jesus, the glory of Jesus, his beauty, his greatness, his excellence, his worth, his majesty, that scene is the laser beam along which great grace streams right into our lives. Grace to receive forgiveness. Grace to love. Grace to rejoice. Grace to live forever. The writer of Hebrews exhorts us, hey, fix your eyes on Jesus. Isaiah wrote, my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. So as I'm going through this Gospel of John, I'm praying, God, show me your glory again. Grant me your grace. Show me more of the greatness of Jesus, the greatness of Christ, so that I can become more like Jesus because we become what we look at. Now, in today's scripture that Jim just read, there's a verse uh, that confirms this. After the story of the wedding of Cana, In John chapter 2, verses 1 to 10, John says in verse 11, if you want to look at verse 11, this, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee, and he manifested his glory. And his disciples believed in him. I think Jim's version said, had faith in him. So here John puts the focus again on seeing Jesus, on seeing the glory of Jesus Christ. His disciples saw his glory, and then they believed on him. And so why did John write his gospel? What was the the purpose for John's writing his gospel? Remember at the very beginning, we said it's John 20, verses 30 and 31. Jesus did many miraculous signs in the presence of his disciples that are not recorded in this book, but these things are written so that we might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, we might have life in his name. And so that's why John is writing this gospel. He wants to reveal the glory of Jesus Christ to us, and he wants us to receive the grace of believing. He wants us to have faith. He wants us to trust in Jesus So it would be perfectly in line with John's intentions if we ask now, what is the glory of Christ revealed in this story at the wedding in Cana of Galilee? In what ways did Jesus reveal or manifest his glory through this miraculous sign? And I see at least three ways. Number one, the glory of an obedient son. Think about that. What I have in mind here is that Jesus exalts his sonship to the heavenly father above his sonship to his earthly mother. So when I call him an obedient son, I mean the son of his heavenly father, not the son of his earthly mother. Now, don't get me wrong. I I think Jesus was a good boy. I think, you know, he was obedient uh, to his earthly mother. I mean, he was the perfect kid, right? But that's not the point here. In fact, I think Jesus' words are intentionally chosen to reveal a radical allegiance to God's will above his mother's will, above all human uh, affections, above, above all human attachments, to show radical allegiance to his father. Look at John 2, 1 to 4. 
On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee. The mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does that have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. I mean, that's kind of a surprising response, is it not? I mean, it almost sounds like Jesus was a little grumpy, doesn't it? I think Jesus knew it would be surprising when he said it. John knew it would be when he recorded it, you know. But Jesus says, woman, you know, what does this have to do with me? He doesn't say mother. He says, woman. His response, I don't think, is really disrespectful. But it's kind of curt. It's kind of abrupt. And it might be like calling her ma'am in some cultures or contexts today. This seems abrupt not only because Jesus calls her woman or ma'am, but also because he says, you know, what does this have to do with me? And that phrase, you know, what does this have to do with me? It's used five other times, that exact phrase in the New Testament. And every time, every time that it's spoken, it's spoken by a demon to Jesus. Every time. So when Jesus has these power encounters with demons, the demons say, what do you have to do with us, son of God? Like Matthew 8, 29, if you want to jot that down, that's, that's just one of the five times. And I think the gist of this phrase seems to be, you know, I don't want you pressing in here. You shouldn't be coming to me like this. This is not your affair. And so Jesus is doubly abrupt with his mother. He calls her woman. Then he says, this is not your place to be calling out my power. It does seem that his mother expected him to do something. We're not told what she expected, but we're told that Jesus did not approve, really, of what she said. So why did Jesus stiff arm his mom? Why did he talk to her like that? What makes this so significant is that Jesus goes right ahead and takes care of the problem by doing a miracle. I mean, so he could have said kind of gently, okay, mom, okay, mother, uh, I'll take care of this immediately. That's what he did, but that's not what he said. And that makes us ask why he spoke to her this way. And if you're going to do what your mother has in mind anyway, why don't you just agree with her and then do it? Why, why this stiff arm? Why this, like, putting off words? I think the answer is that Jesus felt a burden, really, to make it clear, not only to his mom and not only to his brothers and sisters, but to all the rest of us, that because of who he was, physical relationships on earth would not control him. Physical relationships on earth would not oblige him. His mother and his physical family would have no special advantage to guide his ministry. His mother and his brothers and sisters, his physical family, would have no special advantage even to receive salvation. And the reason is that Jesus was absolutely bound to his Father's will. He was bound to his Father's will in heaven and to no one on earth. And this was his guiding star. This was the north star in his sky. And there could be no competing controls on his life. Like John 8, 28. I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. Or John 5, 17, 19. My Father is working until now, and I'm working. The Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, the Son does likewise. His miracles are not at his mother's disposal or anybody else's. He's entirely 
under the control of his heavenly father, under the sway of his heavenly father. And he and the father are one, and they have one will. Jesus had to work against the assumption of his day that his physical family kind of had, you know, an inside track on, on, uh, of influence or blessing. Remember the time, you know, in Luke 11, uh, 27 and 28, a woman in the crowd raised her voice and said to him, blessed is the womb that bore you and the breast at which you nursed. But he said, blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. In other words, people thought that there would be some kind of spiritual advantage in being the mother of Jesus. But Jesus, he cut off that notion. He cut off that assumption and focused his attention not on physical relations, but on spiritual relations. And there's another time, you know, in Mark chapter 3, 32 and 34, the people called to him while he was speaking in the house. And they said, hey, Jesus, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. In other words, followers, not family, have a saving relationship with Jesus. It's about faith, not family. And this is what we are seeing in John chapter 2, verse 4. You know, they have no wine. Woman, what does this have to do with me? Your relationship with me as mother has no special weight here. You're a woman like any other woman. My Father in heaven, not any human being, determines what miracles I perform. And the pathway into my favor is faith, not family. And I tell you, this is really good news for a lot of people. This is good news for all of us, really. Because it doesn't matter what family line we come from. Your parents may be the most ungodly people that you know. But that will not keep you from the favor and from the gospel of Jesus Christ. Faith, not family makes you his friend. So first we see the glory of an obedient son. Part of Jesus' glory is his radical freedom from family partiality and his radical allegiance to his Father in heaven. We have seen his glory, the glory of the only son from the Father. John 1.14. Now the second way Jesus revealed his glory in this miracle, changing the water into wine, we could say it's the glory of an ultimate purifier. And what I mean by this is that there's a reason that Jesus chooses jars of water that were designed for purification. I think Jim's version said for ceremonial washing, not for drinking. When he performs his miracle and he fills them with wine, those jars were jars for, for water for purification, not for drinking. And the reason is that he means to point, I think, to his own death as the ultimate purification for sins that would nullify and replace the Jewish purification rituals and all those ceremonial washings. And I think here's some hints that give this away. And the first hint is when Jesus says to his mother at the end of verse 4, my hour has not yet come. What is his hour? His hour is the hour of his death. When he'll die for the sinners and he'll make purification for sins. This phrase is in other places in John, like John 7.30, so they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. How about John 8.20? No one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. John 12.27, this soul, this now 
is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come, to this hour. And John 12, 23 and 24, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone, but if it dies, it bears much fruit. And so Jesus' hour was the hour of his death when the Lamb of God would take away the sin of the world. This would be the ultimate purification. As John said later in his first letter, 1 John chapter 1, verse 7. You know, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, what? Purifies us from all sin. It's the very same verb used for ceremonial washing and purification here in John chapter 2. The word purifies in 1 John 1, 7. Same word used in John chapter 2, verse 6. The second hint is that even though Jesus kind of rebuked or rebuffed his, his mom's request by saying, my hour has not yet come, he still goes ahead and he does the miracle. So it seems to me and to others what Jesus is doing here is saying, you know, no, my, my hour's not here. My, my, the, the climax of my life, the, the, the reason I came is not here yet. The, the climactic hour of my death is not yet here, but I'm gonna give you a sign of my death. I'm gonna give you a, kind of an acted out parable of my death and what it will mean. I'm gonna give you a prophetic act of my death. The third hint is that Jesus tells the servants to fill the purification jars with water. Now, these were not used for drinking. They were used for bathing. They were used for purifying. So it seems that Jesus wants to say that this is what my hour is going to be like. I will take the purification rituals of Israel, and I'm going to replace them with an absolutely new way of purification, specifically with my blood. And keep in mind, in John 6, 55, Jesus said, my blood is the true drink. And unless you drink the blood of the Son of Man, you have no life in you, John 6, 53. And so the second way that Jesus manifests his glory in this story is by giving a sign. It's by giving an acted out parable. It's by giving a prophetic act of his own death, how his own death, his own blood, his own hour will be a final, decisive ultimate purification for sins. There is no ritual anymore for cleansing. There's only one way to be clean before God. And John says it plainly in Revelation 7, 14. They've washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. The glory, listen, the glory of Jesus is that he alone, once and for all, made purification for sins. And you don't turn to ritual for cleansing. You don't turn to ritual for purification. You turn to Jesus. And what ceremonial washings could not do, the wine of his grace, the wine of his love can do. Where sin abounds, Paul would say in Romans, grace abounds all the more. That was a lot of wine, a lot of grace. A third way Jesus revealed his glory in this miracle, number three, we could say the glory of a all-providing bridegroom. In John 3, 
29 and 30, John the Baptist speaks one more time about the greatness of Jesus compared to him, about the superiority of Jesus. He says, the one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase and I must decrease. And that's the last thing that John the Baptist says about Jesus in this gospel, is that he's the bridegroom who has the bride which is his growing band of disciples, right? And the first miracle Jesus does is to complete what the bridegroom at the wedding could not do because Jesus, he's the perfect groom. John 2, verses 9 and 10. That shows that the groom was really ultimately responsible for the wine at his wedding, which means it was his shortcoming that, the, that let the wedding run out of wine. Verse 9, it says, when the master of the feast, not the groom, but the head waiter, uh, tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom. Now you see who's really in charge of the wine, right? And he said to him, everyone who serves, everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. Of course, the point is, no, he didn't. He let the wine run out. And that's the way it is with grooms all over the earth. All husbands fail to be all that we ought to be. But quietly and sovereignly and omnipotently, Jesus plays the role of this perfect all-providing bridegroom. Out of water comes wine, better than any husband could provide. And so the third way that Jesus manifested his glory at this wedding was that he showed himself to be that all-providing, perfect bridegroom for his bride, the great assembly or multitude of all those who trust in him. So each of these three manifestations of glory, the obedient son, You know, the ultimate purifier, the all-providing bridegroom is just overflowing with grace. From his fullness, you know, chapter 1, verse 16, we receive grace upon grace upon grace, blessing upon blessing. As the obedient son of God, he's not swayed by family ties, not Mary's and, and not yours. It's not about family. It's about faith in Jesus Christ. As the ultimate purifier, He's not moved by religious ritual. He replaced all of the Old Testament ritual once and for all with his own blood. There is only one way to be pure before God. The hardest way for him, the easiest way for us to wash your robes in the blood of the Lamb. Come to him. Trust in him. Salvation is about done. It's not about do. It's about done. What Jesus has done for us on the cross. He gave his life for us. He died in our place. It's not about what we do. It's not about what we think is our righteous acts. It's all about Jesus and what he has provided for us. It's about done. It's not about do. And as the all-providing bridegroom, he never, never, never fails to give us what we need. The life-giving wine of his death in our place, it never runs out. He's the perfect, all-providing husband to his church. His blood will never lose its power. That Andre Crouch song that we sang, 
he wrote another one, you know, the blood that Jesus shed for me way back on Calvary. The blood that gives me strength from day to day will never lose its power. It reaches to the highest mountain, to the lowest valley. The blood that gives me strength from day to day will never lose its power. He's the all-providing bridegroom. Therefore, as John says in Revelation chapter 19, verse 7, let us rejoice and, and, and exalt and give him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come. The bride has made herself ready. Have you made yourself ready? That's really the question, isn't it? Are you washed in the blood of the Lamb? It sounds kind of archaic, doesn't it? Are you washed in the blood of the Lamb? Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for how you have revealed yourself to us in creation. Your beautiful world declares the glory of God. The heavens proclaim your handiwork. God, we thank you that you have revealed yourself completely in your own son. And I thank you, Lord, through scripture, through our own experience of you, that you are indeed the son of God that we can worship. And you have the power to change the water into wine. Lord, as we bring you our garments that are stained with sin, Lord, I thank you that you can give us a robe of righteousness because of what Jesus has done. Lord, I pray that you'd help us all to answer the question, are you washed in the blood of the Lamb? Lord, as we receive uh, the tithe in your offering, I pray that as we give today, as we give money and checks and and our lives to you again, Lord, I pray that it would just be a reflection of our love for you, just a response to your, your amazing grace, grace upon grace, blessing upon blessing, so that we might be a blessing to others, and you continue to work through the ministry of the word through Calvary United Methodist Church. So we commit this offering to you and our love to you again, in Jesus' name, amen.